Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the new financial instrument standard, IFRS 9. And to help us through that, we're joined by Sandra Thompson, who is our global IFRS financial instruments leader. That's a very posh title, Sandra. Welcome to the studio. Or welcome back, I should say. Thank you. If you're a corporate, don't turn off because that's what we're focusing on today. So, Sandra, does IFRS 9 impact corporates? Yes, definitely. I think, as you said, it's well known that IFRS 9 impacts banks and financial institutions. It's probably less recognised that there is an impact on corporates. I've got IFRS 15, the new revenue standard coming, and many corporates are focused on that, and perhaps IFRS 9 has taken a bit of second place. And what I want to do today is to highlight why it impacts corporates, what are the key areas where it's likely to have an effect, to give you some very practical tips as you implement IFRS 9 as to what to look out for and what you need to be doing now. In particular, the mandatory adoption date, 1st of January 2018, is now fast approaching. So want to avoid those last-minute nasty surprises, want to make sure you've done by the 1st of January 2018 what you need to. One thing I will say is we've got 20 minutes, which is not, not long, long to talk about the standard the size of IFRS 9. <laughs> we do have a series of YouTube videos, and everything we're going to cover today is covered in more depth in those videos. There's about 12 of them, each 5 to 10 minutes in length. So if you want more detail, just look for... Demystifying IFRS 9 for Corporates on YouTube and you'll find a lovely little video to to back this up. And we also have written articles in IFRS News on uh, IFRS 9 for Corporates as well. So any medium you like, we've got something on this. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. What are the overall requirements of IFRS 9? Well, IFRS 9 is a very big standard and actually it comes in three discrete sections. So the first is on classification and measurement. That's a fancy say, way of saying, well, what's measured at amortised costs, what's at fair value. For things at fair value, what goes through the income statement, what goes to OCI. The second section is on impairments, what many corporates will call bad debt provisions. And the third section is on hedge accounting. We're going to tell you a bit about each section. The biggest impact is probably going to be hedge accounting for many corporates. But actually, there are issues in each of the other two sections as well. So we will go through all three. And what I'm going to do in each section is to give you my top three issues. This is brilliant. So that's three sections with three issues. That's yeah. nine issues. I call it my nine on nine. Nine <laughs> issues on IFRS 9. So today's nine on nine. Okay. Well, we need like a strap, like a theme tune or something. I'll sing it at the end. <laughs> I'll come up with a song. Okay. So let's start then with number one of the three tips. We're starting with classification and measurement. First of all, I suppose the overall requirements, then what are your three top tips? First thing I'll say is when you actually read the standard, it looks very different from IS39. And you've actually got different rules for different kinds of assets and liabilities. So you've got separate rules for financial assets that are debt investments. That's things like trade receivables, intercompany loans in parent financial statements, investments in debt securities. And then you've got another bunch of rules for financial assets that are equity investments. So that's holdings of shares in other entities, particularly things that are commonly called strategic investments. Not so big they'd be an associate or joint venture, but necessarily a chunky investment in another company. And then finally, you've got financial liabilities. This is all borrowings, bank borrowings, issued debt securities. Classification and measurement, the rules look very different. In practice, the effects can be quite similar to where you are today. So for some companies, there might actually be very little change. But it is a different model. So that means you have to work through the new model. 
you have to redo all your thought process or your documentation process and make sure you're getting the right answers. And in particular, for the financial assets that are debt investments, that's as I mentioned, your trade receivables, intercompany loans, debt securities. You've got to look at two things. The first is the nature of the instrument and whether it's a plain vanilla debt instrument, what's called solely payments of principal and interest. And the second is the reason you're holding it. It's called a business model test. And whether you're holding it to collect the cash flows, that's called how to collect, or whether you might sell or will sell that instrument. And that can very much impact its classification. Okay, so then if you decided if you were hold to collect or hold to collect and sell, I'm guessing that then changes the way you would measure it. Yes, it will. So hold to collect can be amortised cost, provided it's a plain vanilla debt instrument. If it's how to collect and sell or how to sell, it's fair value. How to collect and sell is fair value with the changes in fair value going through OCI. How to sell is fair value with the changes in fair value going through the income statement. Okay, so I think that gives us a really good understanding of classification and measurement principles, but what are your top three? I'll pick out one in each category. We'll start <laughs> with liabilities. As we've mentioned on a couple of our previous podcasts, there's a change for renegotiations of borrowings. So a company that has renegotiated its borrowings will now have to recognise a gain or loss at the time of renegotiation. Under IS39, most people spread the effect forward. The important thing to note here is that is retrospective. So when you adopt IFRS 9, if you've done debt renegotiation in previous periods, there'll be a catch-up adjustment at the time you adopt. You're going to have to restate opening retained earnings, restate the carrying amount of that liability, and that will affect the effective interest rate, the interest expense coming through in the future. And certainly if you've had multiple renegotiations of the same borrowing, it can be quite tricky to calculate what the number is. So that's one to get get on and take a look at and not leave for the last minute. Yeah. So that's liabilities. Number one. <laughs> Number one. Number two. If we talk about financial assets that are debt investments, I think one of the biggest impacts here will be on companies that factor their debts, factor their trade or other receivables. And in particular, where that factoring results in derecognition, so results in an accounting sale. Because if you've got an accounting sale, that means when you do your business model test, that's a sale for the business model test, so those will not almost certainly be held to collect, which means you cannot hold them amortised cost. You'll be one of the other two business models. You'll either be held to collect and sell, if you factor some receivables and not others. Then you'll be measuring your receivables at fair value with gains and losses going through OCI. Or if you factor all or virtually all of your receivables, you could be held for sale, in which case you've got fair value with gains and losses going through the income statement. One really practical tip here is if you are a corporate that factors some but not all of your trade receivables, so maybe you factor the big ones, or you factor only in certain jurisdictions or certain more creditworthy debtors, then think about whether you can separate your, your, your book into two different business models. So you might be able to separate off those you factor, and so those are our discrete business model I look at them differently, I manage them differently, I can clearly identify what's in that group. And those may well be held for sale, fair value through PL. And on the other hand, the other group that you don't factor, you could potentially say, well, that's a little business model all of its own, those will be held to collect, so therefore those could stay at amortised cost. It's perfectly possible to do that under IFRS 9. You have to demonstrate the evidence to do it so that you can separate the two groups and you are managing them differently. And you have to do your business model assessment when you adopt standard. Okay. So for a calendar year-end company, that's the 1st of January 2018, 
So again, it's one of those things to be doing now, yep. not waiting until the end of 2018. So you need to be able to clearly distinguish the two buckets almost. You do, and it's very much based on how you manage. It's a business model. Um, what's your objective with these and what metrics are you looking at? But yes, you need some rational basis to separate. So that's my second one. Number three. Number three, financial assets that are equity investments. So companies with holdings of shares in other companies. And in particular, strategic investments that I mentioned earlier on. The important thing here is that all equity investments have to be measured at fair value. Under IS39 today, if you have an unquoted equity you can't reliably measure, you can hold it at cost. That will change. So you're going to have to fair value all of the equity investments. If you're not fair valuing those today, that can be a difficult yeah. number to work out. You're going to need to put <laughs> a job ahead of in processes in place to get that. The other thing to note is for a holding of an equity investment, you have a straightforward choice as to what you do with the changes in fair value. So you can let either to put them through the income statement or to put them through OCI. That election can be made on an instrument by instrument mm-hmm. basis. So unlike the debt investments, it's not a business model test. You can just go one by one and say, I want that one to be fair value through PL and that other one to be fair value OCI. But you do that election when you adopt the standard. So for most companies, 1st of January 2018. So again, something to be looking at and getting on with and not leaving to the last minute. The company's to-do list is getting longer as we go through the podcast, Sandra. <laughs> okay. So next thing, that's classification and measurement. Let's now move on to, I hear a lot about the new impairment rules and the expected credit loss model under IFRS 9. So could you give us some insight into that? Yeah, impairment generally is probably the biggest change under IFRS 9. Under IS 39 today, we have what's called an incurred loss model. So basically, we wait for evidence that something's gone wrong before we book an impairment. Something actually needs to have got worse. Now, a bit of background, in the financial crisis, there was a lot of concern that this resulted in banks booking their bad debts too little too late. So clearly in a financial crisis, banks were clearly going to be losing money, but because there hadn't actually been a default or a borrower hadn't actually yet got into evidence financial distress, they weren't booking impairment losses. So IFRS 9 moves away from that incurred loss model into what's called an expected loss model. Now, expected loss, very much forward-looking. What do you expect is going to happen? You don't have to wait for actual evidence to be there. And that means that the measurement's going to be probably more volatile and more subjective. And you have to say, look forward. You can't only look at current conditions and what's happened in the past. You need to be looking forward to what you expect is going to happen before you collect the money. So... Conceptually, I understand what we're saying. It's a look forward rather than wait till it happens. Can you give us a basic example to sort of help us understand it? Yeah, perhaps we'll take trade receivables. Let's suppose today a company has a policy of making a provision for, say, 30% of trade receivables when they go more than 90 days past due. Now, that's a backwards looking. You're waiting for them to go 90 days past due before you book anything. Under IFRS 9, you can't do that anymore. So when you first take the trade receivables on your books, when you sell the goods or services, you get that trade receivable. At that point, you have to do a forward-looking assessment of how much do I think I'm actually going to be able to collect. So maybe you sell for 100 and think, well, actually, on average, I only collect 95. And then you have to make that forward-looking. So maybe I'm in economic downturn. I think for this particular trade receivable, actually, it's going to be 92. Therefore, you book that, tr- that loss, that difference of eight, in my yeah. example, on day one. Okay. You don't wait for it to go past due. So you can see immediately you're getting that expected yeah. loss on day one, 
bigger and sooner. Yeah, so it's different. Okay, so what else does IFRS 9 tell us about impairment? What are your top three here? The first thing to note is that said privileges are going to be probably bigger, but also more volatile because you're forward-looking. They're much more responsive to changes in economic conditions. And particularly if you've got long-term trade receivables or intercompany loans, so parent financial statements, if you've done a long-term loan to a subsidiary, that impact can be quite big. So you need to be managing the message, both externally with investors, but also internally to the board, for example. They need to be expecting this and understanding maybe not an actual change in the economics, it's a change in the accounting. So that's my first thing. Yeah. The second thing, if we look at trade receivables, You've got the new revenue standard and IFRS 9 coming in at the same time, and that can have what we call a double hit to the income statement. So if you have a long-term trade receivable, what the new revenue standard says has got a significant financing component, then you're going to have to discount. So maybe you sell goods and services for 100. The first thing you have to do under the new revenue standard is discount that, take into account the time value of money. That might bring it down to, say, 95. And then when you've done that, you then go and apply IFRS 9, IFRS 9, as I said, is an expected loss day one loss measurement. So on top of that, you have to say, okay, I'm at 95. How much do I actually think I'm going to recover? Maybe I'm only going to recover 92. So then you book the extra three as an impairment loss on day one. So you've got that double hit, which means that the net amount going from the income statement is only 92, not 100. So that, I think many corporates are finding that unexpected, maybe. So you've got less revenue and then you've got an impairment charge as well. Exactly. So your revenue number will be 95, but then you take the impairment charge as well. So that's number two. And then my third practical tip is IFRS 9 itself. The actual basic model is quite complicated, so it provides for some simplified approaches, which, as the name suggests, are easier to do. They take less time, less effort. However, simpler may not actually be best. They're simpler, so they're a bit rough and ready and they can result in bigger and more volatile provisions than the more complicated methods. So do take some time to work through the options you have in IFRS 9. Um, Particularly for trade receivables, there are some simplifications, but think hard about whether you want to go there. As I say, it's nice to give you bigger and more volatile provisions. We haven't got time to go today into all those models, but we've got one of the very good YouTube videos goes through the various simplifications there are. It's got some nice flow charts in there. Oh, okay. to take a look at. <laughs> and one of those simplifications, I think, for trade receivables is provisions matrix, which I'm sure lots of companies probably already have under IS39. Can you explain a little bit more about, you know, provisions matrix? Yes, certainly. And I think, first thing I'll say is I think this is a very practical simplification. It's one that we think many corporates will want to use. What is a provisions matrix? <laughs> well, basically it means taking typically trade receivables and doing an ageing analysis. So you'll put them into time buckets, say 0 to 30 days, 30 to 60, 60 to 90. And then for each of those time buckets, you book a provision based on a loss rate for a debtor of that age. So typically the 0 to 30 will have lower provisions than the than past due 90 days, um, because typically as a debtor gets older, it's less likely yeah. to pay you at all. You can do that today, and you can do it under IFRS 9. One thing I will note is that what you do under IFRS 9 may be different to what you're doing today. So you can't just take the approach you're doing today and assume it's IFRS 9 compliant. And the two key things you need to bear in mind is that when you do that ageing analysis and you've got your different time buckets, 
the loss rate for the time buckets should be different. You can't take one loss rate for the entire book. So as I said, typically, as trade receivables get older, they're less likely to pay you at all, because let's face it, the ultimate late payer is the one who never pays. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, you would expect the older time buckets to have a higher loss rate. And the second thing to note is, in general, with, with the, in line with the general model, this needs to be forward-looking. And the provisions matrices most companies today are backwards-looking. So they look at historical loss rates. So we're in an expected loss model. It needs to be forward-looking. So particularly if you're in an economic downturn, you need to say, well, what do I expect to happen? And that could give you bigger loss rates than your historical backward-looking numbers will do. Again, we have a video that works for an example of how to take a provisions matrix that companies generally do today and how to make that IFRS 9 compliant. And we've got sort of five steps okay, you would really do. Helpful. So again, that's worth looking yeah. at. And when I've been talking to companies and IFRS 9 has come up, if you've got a history of, you know, you actually you have a very low, I call it bad debt provision. I know it's not called that anymore, but you're really good at collecting your debts. I suppose there's a bit of a discussion around, do I really have to increase my provision? I know we're expecting an expected loss model to be higher. Is that always going to be the case? Well, it could be actually you don't increase your provision or not materially. But of course, you need to work through the model and, and provide the evidence to substantiate that. In fact, it could be in some cases provisions actually go down, particularly because this is forward looking. So if you're coming out of an economic downturn and your, your historical data has been downturn data with big losses and you're actually thinking going forward things are getting better, you might actually end up with a smaller provision. Wow. So the important thing, though, is you can't assume the number won't change. You actually need to do the work and apply the model. Yeah, really helpful. Okay, so that's section two. The third bit uh, you mentioned was hedge accounting. This is where I might need to hug Sandra, but let's, let's start with the basics. Tell us more about that. I've read a lot that it's going to benefit corporates. Yes, that's very true. I think this is the, the kind of good news story lurking in IFRS 9. So under IS39 today, I think the word easy and hedge accounting just it never, they don't belong in the same <laughs> sentence, do they? And I think many companies actually struggle to get hedge accounting today. And so they can take out hedge that economically, it's a very good risk management strategy. Economically, this hedge works, but they can't get hedge accounting because there's so many rules you have to comply with and hurdles you have to demonstrate you've met. Now, one of the objectives of IFRS 9 was to solve some of those problems and to enable companies to get hedge accounting when they have sensible economic hedges. So the accounting requirements are now much more in line with how companies actually manage risk, which in general is good news. Okay, so can you tell us about your top three tips in hedging? Yes, certainly. So the first one is to do with effectiveness testing. Under IS39 today, we have this bright line requirement that a hedge has to be highly effective. That means 80 to 125% test has to be met. That bright line disappears under IFRS 9. So you can now have a hedge that's, say, 79% effective and still apply hedge accounting. You don't have the effect that when you get to a period where you hit 79% effectiveness, you have to stop hedge accounting, you get a lot of p volatility. There are still effectiveness mm-hmm. testing requirements, though. It's not surprising. Free for all. So rather than this bright line test, we now have the need to demonstrate an economic relationship between the thing you're hedging and the thing you're hedging with. Now, in many cases, that will be straightforward. So let's suppose I have a foreign currency sale with a foreign currency receivable. Say it's a, a sterling entity with a US dollar receivable. Take out a US dollar foreign currency forward contract. Same amount, same timing, you've clearly got that economic relationship. That can be quite easy to demonstrate in that case. 
in more complicated cases, you might have to do quite a lot of work to demonstrate the economic relationship, particularly when companies are doing what I call proxy hedging. So they can't get the perfect hedge. They hedge with a derivative or something that's related, but not exactly the same. But anyway, this is definitely good news. So yeah. That's the first one. The second one, mainly this is going to apply in the commodity space. This is the ability to hedge a component of a non-financial asset. I'll give you an example. Many airlines today, they obviously have jet fuel purchases. They want to hedge their forecast jet fuel purchases. However, derivatives on jet fuel, certainly for long periods of time, are very illiquid. So airlines commonly use derivatives on crude oil. Now, they will say that actually when you look at jet fuel and how jet fuel is priced, because jet fuel is derived from crude oil, the pricing reflects a crude oil component. Under IS39 today, you can't hedge just the crude oil component. You have to hedge the entirety of the jet fuel. There isn't perfect correlation. You get kicked out by the 80 to 125 test. It doesn't work. Under IFRS 9, you can hedge that jet, that, sorry, that crude oil component in your jet fuel, provided certain tests are met. Other examples, let's suppose we have a producer of aluminium cans. The price of the can will largely reflect the aluminium that's gone into it, obviously plus some processing costs and profit margin, perhaps some transport costs. Under IFRS 39, you couldn't hedge just the aluminium component. Now you can. And perhaps one final one, if you say you're a coffee producer producing ground coffee, the price of that coffee will reflect the, the, the coffee beans that are yeah. into it. Today you can't hedge just the coffee bean component. Going forwards you potentially can. So you see that's quite yeah, powerful in the commodities yeah. space. It means you'll get much, much better matching, much less noise in the income statement. Again, it's not free for all. There are some criteria you have to meet. In particular, your component has to be separately identifiable and reliably measurable. Again, unplug a video if you want to know more, we've got a very good video on that. So that's number two. My final one is hedging with options and forwards. In particular options, I think today many companies avoid using options to hedge because you get a lot of P&L volatility from, do from doing so. In particular, when you buy an option, you pay a day one amount for that option, often called the option premium. And under IS39, the value of that premium gets marked to market fair value through the income statement, and that can give you a lot of period of volatility. Under IFRS 9, again, that changes. So you have a new model called a cost of hedging model, under which that, that day one premium that you pay, the changes in that don't go through the income statement immediately. They're either spread over time or they, they match the thing you're hedging. That can actually make hedging with options a lot more attractive. And I think some companies that haven't hedged with options today are thinking about actually starting to do so because economically they want to, just didn't like the P&L volatility. I would say that new cost of hedging model is optional. So again, think, do you want to use it? If so, you've got to designate that you are using it again by your doc, when you adopt standard 1st of January 2018. Yeah. So Sandra, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast now. So just lastly on hedge accounting, it sounds all positive there. They're three good things. Is there any downside of the hedge accounting? Oh, unfortunately, there is. <laughs> Not to end on a negative, no, but... There are. <laughs> um, so, because the requirements for hedge accounting have changed, that means your hedge documentation needs to change. Most hedge documentation today, we'll talk about hedge effectiveness tests of 80 to 125. That all needs to be updated because of the underlying requirements have changed. And now you need to talk about economic relationships. The first thing you need to do is to update all your hedge documentation. So even if your hedge accounting isn't changing, your documentation needs to change. 
and you need to do that by the 1st of January 2018. <laughs> the second thing to note is that some of the new rules are quite complicated to apply. So how you measure ineffectiveness when you're hedging with an option, particularly if your option isn't the perfect match to what you're hedging, that can be quite complicated. And many of the systems that companies use today aren't set up to comply with IFRS 9. So particularly if you're doing more complicated hedging, be aware, things are changing, your systems probably need to change as well. And the third thing is that you do have a number of choices within the standard. I mentioned the cost of hedging model, but there are a number of, of different ways you could go. So therefore, you need to decide what you're going to do. You need to spend some time doing that, and you need to have elected that by the 1st of January 2018 to get the answer you want, because your hedge documentation has to be the one you want to go for. I can imagine people listening to this, Sandra, literally writing more and more on their to-do list of what they need to do by the 1st of January, which is fast approaching. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sandra. You almost made IFRS 9 feel simple. I wish you could sit next to me every day and explain financial instruments when I get stuck. But thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Sandra gave us her nine on nine. I won't recap them all. We'll be here for another 20 minutes. But like Sandra said, there's loads more information on IFRS 9 for corporates on pwc.com forward slash IFRS. Also, there's the YouTube videos and every month we bring out an IFRS news article as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening, everybody. And happy accounting. I'm your host, Ruth Breedy. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.